you will go ahead and open up your Bibles to Psalm chapter 9, if you're not there already. Psalm chapter 9. All right. One of the reasons people love to talk about their favorite band, their favorite restaurant, maybe their favorite movie, is because somehow their joy isn't completed until they share it with somebody so that somebody else could see the glory that they see in their favorite band, restaurant, or movie. Well, psalm chapter 9 is a psalm of praise and thanksgiving. And David is sharing with the people about the glory of God and his power to deliver his people. He wants the people to join him in marveling at God's righteous judgments against his foes. In this psalm, we don't know the specific event that he has in mind, but we get a gist of the situation. And we see three main characters. We see God, we see his people, and we see the wicked nations. The wicked nations, the Gentiles in this text, they don't fear God. They don't listen to him. Frankly, they don't care about him at all. As a result, they oppress God's people. They do all sorts of terrible things to them. And so the people of God who do know God, they go to him and they cry out to him and they ask him to take up their cause against these evil and oppressive Gentile nations. And God, thankfully, he listens to the people of God. He hears their cry and he responds with a powerful act of judgment to save them. And the final thing we see then is that the people of God respond to God's act of judgment to save them. They respond by rejoicing and by telling the story of their deliverance to the world. And that's what I want to leave you with this morning. You also have a story of deliverance to share with the world. You have a story of deliverance to share with the world. With that in mind, let's go to the Lord in prayer and ask for his help. Let's pray. Holy God, we thank you for this morning, the Lord's day. We ask, Father, that you would help us to rejoice in you. Help us with fresh eyes to see the glory of your righteousness, the rightness of your judgments, your power to deliver those who take refuge in you, Restore to us the joy of our salvation this morning. Would you use even me as I preach this word to do that? Help me where I fall short. Fill in the gaps. Would you bless your people? We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. I have three points for you this morning. First, the wicked nations oppress. Point number two, the righteous king judges. Point number three, the rescued sinners respond. I'll give those to you each as we get to them. Point number one, the wicked nations oppress. The people of God have always been surrounded by those who are not the people of God. Abel was murdered by his brother. Noah and his family, they were righteous, but they were surrounded by a generation 
whose every intention was only evil continually, God says. Abraham, he left one pagan nation to go sojourn in another pagan nation. The Jews, they multiplied in Egypt, but they were surrounded by godless, by godless neighbors, by pagans. And they worshipped Egyptian gods. And then God brings them up out of Egypt, right? Just the people of God. So you're thinking, okay, no more being surrounded by God's enemies. But as they come out of Egypt and they're wandering in the desert, they find that there are those who are even inside the people of God who are not actually the people of God. And they finally make it into the promised land, right? This is going to be their place, God's people with, with their king, God. But no, they fail to push out the Canaanite nations that surrounded them. So they are still left with a thorn in their side, the Philistines, the Amorites, the Hittites, the Jebusites, the Hivites, the Perizzites, whatever ites you can think of are still there with God's people. During this period of time, while the Jews are in the promised land, that's when Psalm chapter 9 is written here by David. So when we see the wicked, we see words like the nations, we read about the oppressors in our text, they are here referring to these tribes that surrounded Israel in the promised land. If you know your Old Testament, you know that Israel has uh, had a bad relationship with the Canaanites since the very beginning, even when they were still in the desert, before they even made it into the promised land. They were fighting one another. So while the Jews were in the desert, the Amalekites, they looked at them like a, like a wounded animal out there. And they saw an opportunity to come out and to pounce on them, to get the upper hand on Jerusalem. When the Jews sought safe passage across the Jordan, the Edomites, ref they refused to let them come through. They were already like, no, we're against you. <laughs> you can't come in. And then the Jews they finally made it into the promised land. And like I said, they failed to push the nations out. They still fought continuously with the Moabites, with the king of Canaan, with the Philistines, with the Midianites, and so on. We saw that in the book of Judges. Their cities were sieged. Their families were killed. Their livelihood was destroyed. Their God was often mocked. The same pattern that has been with God's people from the very beginning was still taking place in David's life. That's why in the psalm he uses language like, the afflicted, the oppressed, the needy. Lord, the nations continue to do this to us. Sure, there are moments of reprieve, right? But, but like a boxer, the next bout was always right around the corner. Another fight with the nations was right there. The surrounding nations, they were not going to stop until God's people were either extinct or they were completely under their thumb in slavery. That's the position God's people find themselves in. It's been like that since the beginning. It was like that during the time of this psalm. And brothers and sisters, it's still true today. The wheat always grows next to the weeds. Those who have been sanctified and set apart coexist and live alongside those who are unsaved. Jesus tells us that he did not come to take us out of the world. At least he hasn't yet. So what this means is that we also are surrounded by enemies on every side. And we also are afflicted and must face oppression 
in this life. I want to remind you this morning, church, that as you are wandering through the desert, and as we are looking forward to the promised land, heaven, which is to come, we are surrounded by enemies, and they want to crush God's people. We experience this in three ways. The first way is persecution from believers. Paul tells Timothy this, Everyone who desires to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. That's pretty clear. Jesus tells the disciples, If the world hates you, know that it hated me before it hated you. If I'm your master and you're following me and they hate me, he goes on to say in another place, they're going to hate you. Peter tells us this, Do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you, as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed, because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. It's pretty clear. If you're a disciple of Jesus, the more that you grow and mature and live out your faith among the peoples, the more persecution that you can expect. It's just a matter of fact. The Bible couldn't be more plain. As Grant prayed about North Korea and about so many places in the world, this is the norm. Being despised, persecuted, even murdered, that's what we expect. That's what we read what happened in the Bible. The anomaly has been the American experiment for the most part. And there's sort of a whole other discussion to take place with that. But here's what I want you to know that, yeah, you live in America, and yeah, for the most part, things seem certainly much easier than they do in North Korea. The truth of the matter is still, brothers and sisters, that the human condition is hostile against God. The flesh cannot please God until God changes it. When humans, I'm talking about your neighbors, I'm talking about your really sweet, unbelieving grandmother, when they meet God, they're the kind of people that would hang him on a cross and put a spear in his side. That's their attitude towards God. And so, when unregenerate people get a whiff of the aroma of Christ on you, how do you think they're going to respond? You carry the title of Christian. That means little Christ. If they'll do that to him, then they're going to persecute you. So I want to anticipate what you're thinking. Uh, I don't know, Well, that hasn't really been my experience. You know, the people around me, the unbelievers around me, they're pretty nice. That could mean a couple things. One, it could mean that you're not living out your faith. And it may be that they're just not getting the aroma of Christ on you. But it also might mean that we just live in a more civil place, and civility is nice. I, I like that. I would rather my unbelieving neighbor be civil to me than try to murder me. However, do not confuse a, a good dose of tolerance with friendliness towards God. That tolerance has its limits. Those limits will be crossed. And I want you to know, uh, I'm pretty convinced that, that day is 
It's, it's coming closer for us here. Do not be surprised when the fiery trial comes on you. Now listen, I don't say this that you're going to be paranoid. I don't want you to be cynical. I don't want you to be self-righteous, like, ah, I'm saved and all you people aren't saved, right? Your unbelieving coworker is, in fact, an enemy. But that does not mean that we should suspect their every motives, that we should be mean to them, right? that we should not be civil towards them. Absolutely not. should not treat them poorly. The Bible is clear. It says the exact opposite. Love your enemies. Be exceptional in the way that you treat your enemies. Pray for them. Do good to them. Be humble that you've been saved by grace through Jesus Christ and let that control the way you treat your enemies. And then leave the final judgment to God. It's not our place to go and take the sword. Jesus didn't come to bring a sword. He hasn't yet. We're going to leave that to him. For now we love, we evangelize. But nonetheless, again, be aware of your situation. Some of you have already lost jobs because of the fight. You know, some of you have already, you already have strained relationships with loved ones. It's coming. So be ready for it. Again, do not be surprised when the fiery trial comes for you. The second way that we are surrounded is by temptation in the flesh. When you're saved, you might think, all right, no more wrestling with sin. We're good. (laughs) But that's not what happens, is it? That's not our experience. God doesn't take it all away at once. Instead, the moment of your salvation actually kicks off a lifelong war with your flesh. (laughs) Far from creating more peace in your life, actually, it's kind of like God took a grenade and tossed it in. It just blows the whole thing up. That's when the fight starts to get crazy. Because before you were saved... You just went along with your flesh. This is my desire, and you just kind of tugged you along, and you just kind of went after it. There was, no, there was no real resisting or anything. It was easy, easy to sin. But now that you have the, a new set of spiritual desires, there's a conflict. There's this raging war between what I want to do and what I don't want to do, what my spirit wants to do and what my flesh wants to do. Your flesh wants to destroy you And it it wants to take the reins of your heart. It wants to regain control and lead you into sin and to gratifying its every desire. Paul describes it this way in Romans chapter 7. For I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. Why? Because I delight in the law of God in my inner being, but I see my members, that is like my flesh, Another law, waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. Do you see that warring language? Do you see the inner self surrounded by the outer self fighting off the enemy, this fleshly desire? And then Paul says, Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Who will deliver me from my enemy? We're going to talk about deliverance later in the sermon. There's a third way that we are surrounded and afflicted, and that is the devil. It's a little cheesy, uh, but Verbal Kent, he was onto something when he said, the greatest trick the devil ever pulled was convincing the world he didn't exist. That's true of us, even as Christians. 
it's really easy for us to forget that there is a real Satan with real minions who really is trying to destroy you. Peter tells us this, be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. Are you alert? Are you sober-minded? Are you watchful? Because the devil, he wants to sift you like wheat. He wants to find you unaware and like a lion jumping out from tall grass. He wants to rip you apart limb from limb. He's there. That is a real enemy surrounding you. God hasn't taken us out of the fray. He has not yet taken Satan and his demons and lock them in the pit of hell. So for now, we sojourn in this world surrounded by spiritual enemies, wrestling against not flesh and blood, as Paul says, but wrestling against spiritual enemies. So pray. Pray that God would help you to stand firm and to resist the devil in his fiery arrows. So, to belong to God is to be surrounded by enemies. We've been set apart from unbelievers. We've been thrust into the battle against our flesh. We've been set even further at odds with spiritual forces. So what I need to see then is that the context of the problem of Psalm chapter 9, being surrounded by enemies, is also your problem. Enemies want to crush God's people. It's always been true. So the question now is, what are we going to do about it? How are you going to survive? Will you just try to coast by? Make sure you don't make any waves with your neighbors. Like, hey, like, we're cool. I'm one of you guys. That's one way you could do it. Will you make small compromises with sin? Maybe lead into bigger compromises with sin? Just try to coexist with your carnal and sinful desires. Can't be a fight if I just go along. Will you just convince yourself that there aren't spiritual enemies that are trying to devour you? Ignorance is bliss. We just block all of this out and just try to, try to numb the pain. Just pursue the comforts of this life. Are you going to dig deep down into yourself? Try to find some, muster up some extra effort, whatever you can, so that you will deliver yourself from all of your enemies. Or will you, when troubles come, and they're, they're coming, they're already here, when troubles come, are you going to do what David does and turn to God and pray to him? Look at verses 13 through 14. David says, Be gracious to me, O Lord. See my affliction from those who hate me. O you who lift me up from the gates of death, that I may recount all your praises, that in the gates of the daughter of Zion I may rejoice in your salvation. Be gracious to me. See that people want to crush me, God. Will you help me? Do you see the same predicament as true of you? And will you go to him and ask for help? David knows that 
Either he will pass through the gates of death in silence, or he will pass through the gates of Jerusalem with rejoicing. David will either have a story to tell about God's deliverance, or he will not have a story to tell at all. And he knows that if he's going to survive the enemies that surround him, it will be because his gracious God saves him. He has nothing else. But should he expect that God will hear his prayers? How does he know that his prayers won't be in vain? How does he know that he's not going to be left to his enemies to destroy him? That brings us to point number two. The righteous king judges. When a cop shows up to an active crime scene, is he there to save the victim or is he there to stop the person who's the perpetrator? Save the victim, stop the perpetrator. Which one? Yes. <laughs> the answer is yes, right? It's to do both of those things. They're two sides of the same coin. The cop rescues the victim by stopping the perpetrator. We find a similar principle here at play with God. God is the judge and the king of the whole world. Look at the second half of verse 4. David says, You have sat on the throne giving righteous judgment. And then look a little further down, verses 7 through 8. But the Lord sits enthroned forever. He has established his throne for justice. And he judges the world with righteousness. He judges the people with uprightness. He's not a cop, but he is a judge. And the way that the judge is going to save the innocent by pronouncing judgments against the guilty. But these words here in verses 7 through 8 about the righteousness of God, about being, Him being enthroned forever, about Him establishing justice, about Him always dealing with the peoples with uprightness. I don't want these words to just go over your head. Don't, don't brush them off. Don't treat these verses like it's just some boring, repetitive Hebrew poetry. I'm sure some, someone who's nerdier than me likes that kind of stuff. Don't treat it like that. Listen to what this is saying about God. Get a sense of the majesty and the wonder that is in these words. God is the king. He is the only king. God is enthroned forever. God has always been in charge. God will always be in charge. God has always been righteous. And he will always be righteous. He sees every little detail that takes place in his creation. And he is going to take the measuring stick of his righteousness, his perfect standard, and everything is going to be held accountable to that standard. That is terrifying. He is going to judge all things. I'm not the judge. You aren't the judge. Moral consensus isn't the judge. The government isn't the judge. God is on his throne. And he is a judge forever and, only, and, and, forever and always. The only thing that matters is what he says from that throne about everything else. 
Do you believe that? Do you see that? Because there's two groups of people in this world. The enemies of God who do not see that and do not believe that. And the people of God who do see that and who do believe it. And who, that is the only thing they have. So imagine then. The Lord's court is in session. David and the people of God are on one side. The enemies, the nations, they're on the other. The nations have been cursing and plotting and murdering and mocking and persecuting. And God sees it. And that should be terrifying to them. But the nations, they look at the king at his throne, they kind of squint, kind of look around. I don't see anything. Who's this guy? What do I care? Look, look at verse 17. The wicked shall return to Sheol, which means the place of the dead. All the nations that forget God. They're on trial and they forget God. They don't care who he is. They don't listen to him. They suppress the fact that Yahweh is the supreme righteous judge over all the universe. Therefore, they don't fear him. They don't obey his commands. They go on where they're cursing and plotting and mocking and murdering and persecuting. They set a trap for their own feet, David says. But David and the people of God, they're in that courtroom and they look at him and they say, this is the I am. This is Yahweh. He is the king of the universe. He is all powerful. Lord, I, I trust in you. I want to confide in you. Will you take up my calls? Will you help me? Will you deliver me? They view God completely differently than the wicked nations. They see him for what he really is, which is why David also writes here in verses 9 through 10. The Lord is a stronghold for the oppressed, a stronghold in times of trouble. And those who know your name, they put their trust in you. For you, O Lord, have not forsaken those who seek you. And then jump down to verse 12. For he who avenges blood is mindful of them. He does not forget the cry of the afflicted. That's how the people of God view him. The wicked nations ignore him, but God's people take refuge in him. And God responds with righteous judgment which is, depending on which side you are, the most terrible thing or the most comforting thing in the universe. Here's what that judgment looks like. Look at verses three through six. When my enemies turn back, they stumble and perish before your presence. For you have maintained my just cause. You have sat on the throne giving righteous judgment. You have rebuked the nations. You have made the wicked perish. You have blotted out their name forever and ever. The enemy came to an end in everlasting ruins. Their cities you rooted out. The very memory of them has perished. God is not messing around. He blots out the enemies of Israel. His presence to judge them causes them to stumble and to perish. And did you see why God does this? 
Look, look back at verse 4. Look at the word for. My enemies perish for or because you have maintained my just cause. Because you have sat on the throne giving righteous judgments. That is, because God is perfectly righteous, he utterly destroys the wicked in order to save the innocent. Because he takes the side of the innocent, he is going to wipe out the wicked who afflict them. And that is their salvation. Salvation comes through judgment. That's what we see in the text. Okay, God is righteous. He's going to save the innocent. He's going to judge the wicked. He's on his throne. He's all-powerful. He will surely do it. But here's the million-dollar question. Who's innocent? Who's in the right, ultimately? Is it just the first one who tattles to the judge who wins the case? Israel got there first. (laughs) I mean, why shouldn't Israel be on the receiving end of God's righteous judgment? Spoiler alert, they very often are on the receiving end of God's righteous judgment. We can make it more personal. What about you? Shouldn't you be asking, am I part of the people of God or am I the surrounding nations? Am I going to receive deliverance or am I going to receive punishment from the judge? Let me ask you some diagnostic questions to see what you think. Can you say that you were totally innocent? Have you ever known what you should do and then not done it anyways? Have you ever known that you shouldn't do something and then went ahead and and done it? Do you ever mistreat people? Do you ever put your interests ahead of the interests of others and act selfishly? Jesus says, love your neighbor as yourself. Can you honestly say that you have perfectly and consistently loved your neighbor as yourself? When you die and you come into the presence of the eternal king, and he is on his throne, and he takes the measuring stick of his perfect righteousness, and he holds it up against your life, how are you going to do? Is God going to nod approvingly? Wow, you, you passed. <laughs> that was really good. You're, you're totally righteous. No, I'm afraid, friends, that none of us is inherently innocent. None of us is righteous on our own. And the justice of God is a terrifying reality for every single person on this planet. That's the bad news. That's part one of the story. The good news is that there is a way to be made right with God. And there is a way to be counted as perfect and righteous, not because of yourself, but because of what Jesus has done for us on the cross. The righteousness of God is available to those who through faith, trust, and wholly lean on Jesus Christ. You see, David didn't, he didn't go 
to take refuge in God because he was perfectly innocent. Far from it. He went and took refuge in God because he knows that God forgives sins. He goes to God and says, I am not righteous, but you make righteous judgments. You, were, you made a covenant with Abraham, and you're going to keep it. And Lord, I don't want to be on the outside of that covenant. Would you help me to believe and to trust in you? And would you cleanse from my name all of my iniquities? That's why he writes later in the Psalms about this very thing. He knows that he's no better off than the Canaanites, except this fact. Blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord will not count his sin. Friends, if you were going to survive God's perfectly just judgments, then your sins have to be covered too. You must go to Jesus. And I'm telling you that Jesus Christ is dead for you today. You can repent of your sin and trust in him in this very moment and throw yourself on his mercy and he is compassionate and he will do it and he will count you righteous and innocent. And when he comes back to judge all the earth, he will not treat you as an enemy, but instead he will treat you as a friend and you will be safe and secure from the wrath of God. There is no other hope for David or for me or for you. So go to him and he will receive you into his loving and forgiving arms. And then, then he will take up your cause against your enemies. Think about the three surrounding enemies I mentioned in point one. Unbelievers, your sinful flesh, the spiritual enemies. In Christ, God has already defeated them and at his return, he will fully and finally defeat all of them. Said another way, he has already saved us from our enemies. But a day is coming when he will come back and he will fully and finally save us from our enemies. Here's what I mean. Concerning unbelievers, those who believe in Jesus have already been set apart from the world, but we have not yet been taken out of the world. Like I said, we're, we're the wheat growing up next to the wheat. But when Jesus comes back, there will be a harvest, right? The wheat and the weeds will all be cut and brought to the threshing floor and they're going to be separated. The wheat will be in one pile, the weeds will be in another pile and the weeds are going to be burned in hell. But the wheat, the people of God, they're going to be stored in his barns, which is heaven and then we're going to be with God forever. In the new heavens and the new earth, there won't be any more persecution from unbelievers. There won't be any more wicked doers. It will just be God's people with God and no surrounding enemies. The second way concerns the flesh. Jesus has already delivered you from the power of sin. Amen? Right? The sin no longer can deceive us. It no longer has the upper hand on us. You don't have to obey it. Paul says, with every temptation there comes away from the Lord, a way out. That's good news. We can fight against that. However, we're still in the fight. 
The enemy's still around us in our spiritual desires. But when Jesus comes back, it won't be that way anymore. We're going to be given glorified bodies. Our flesh is going to be destroyed. And then we will be free to perfectly obey God all of the time. That deliverance is coming. That's going to be so sweet. Concerning the devil, a time is coming when Satan and his minions are going to be locked in the pit of hell and they will no longer afflict God's people. No more doubts will be sown. No more temptations are going to be agitated by the devil. We'll be free from that. Free from our spiritual enemies forever. Brothers and sisters, we already have the victory, but the full and final victory, it's coming. God is righteous. And as I said, that's bad news for sinners. But he has provided forgiveness for those who trust in Christ. And those who trust in Christ, God will fully and finally save from their enemies when he comes back. So, in light of God's righteous judgments, what should be the response of those sinners who have been saved and then brought near to God and who will be ultimately delivered from all of their enemies? That brings us to the last point. Point number three, the rescued sinners respond. Psalm chapter nine describes three different but related ways that people respond to God and his righteous judgments. The first way is that the people of God rejoice. Look at verses one and two. I will give thanks to the Lord with my whole heart. I will recount all of your wonderful deeds. I will be glad and exult in you. I will sing praise to your name, O Most High. Jump down to verses 11 and 12. Sing praises to the Lord who sits enthroned in Zion. Tell among the peoples his deeds. For he who avenges blood is mindful of them. He does not forget the cry of the afflicted. God is delivering us from our enemies, even today. I urge you, brothers and sisters, rejoice in that fact. Don't don't take that lightly. Give praise and thanksgiving to God, the psalmist says, with your whole heart. You deserve to be on the wrong side of God's justice, but you are on the right side of God's justice. Be glad. And you have enemies today, but is he not giving you victory constantly? Doesn't God convert your unbelieving friends and loved ones into saints? Doesn't he make enemies into friends? Doesn't the Lord comfort those who are being persecuted? Our brothers and sisters in North Korea? God sees them. God loves them. He comforts them. He does it for us. Doesn't the Lord give you victory over sin? Does that not bring joy to your heart? When you overcome that temptation, the thing that you thought that you could never overcome, and he helps you in the, in, the, in the battle. He gets you through it. Don't you see a growth in your sanctification? Don't you have an increased hatred for sin and an increased love for God? That's God's doing. Praise him for it. Give him thanks. 
Hasn't the Lord protected you from the fiery arrows of the enemy? Hasn't he sustained your faith? The world and the devil has given us so many reasons to abandon God and to turn away from him and just to say, I'm done with this. But he has sustained you. He's doing it even right now. When you're weak and when you're full of doubt, doesn't the, the Lord restore to you the joy of your salvation? Doesn't he pour out his love in your heart? Doesn't the Holy Spirit testify with your spirit, Abba, Father, I am an adopted child of God. Won't you rejoice in these truths and praise him and give him thanks with your whole life? The second way people respond, the people of God, remember. We have so much to rejoice about, and at the same time, the battle still rages on. Sometimes our rejoicing is soured by a, n- a new affliction, another moment of persecution and temptation and, and doubt. In these moments, remember what God has done. Remember that He is faithful. And that the wondrous deeds he has done for you in the past, he can do again today. Fortify today's resolve with yesterday's deliverance. That means remember. We see that here in this psalm. After 12 verses of celebrating God's righteous judgments, the psalmist finds himself praying in verses 13 through 14 that God would do it all over again. Yes, Lord, you've delivered us. Lord, I'm in the midst of affliction. Deliver me. Look there, verses 13 through 14. Be gracious to me, O Lord. See my affliction from those who hate me. O you who lift me up from the gates of death, that I may recount all your praises, that in the gates of the daughter of Zion I may rejoice in your salvation. He remembers again that the Lord is gracious and that he is a deliverer. Brothers and sisters, don't forget what the Lord has done for you. Turn to him in prayer frequently. And let his past faithfulness encourage you in your next trial. He's done it a million times. He'll do it again. And then also remember, not just in the past, but remember looking forward. That is, have hope that he will fully and finally judge all of your enemies and save you. The third way that people respond is the people of God recount. As the people of God rejoice and they remember God's deliverance, they begin recounting his wondrous deeds. It just means they start telling other people about it. David has a story about deliverance to share with the world. So we see that in three places in our text. Verse 1, I will give thanks to the Lord with my whole heart. I will recount all of your wonderful deeds. Verse 11, Sing praises to the Lord who sits enthroned in Zion. Tell among the peoples his deeds. Verse 13. Be gracious to me, O Lord. Why? Verse 14. That I may recount all your praises. David's celebration isn't just private. He sings about it in the company of the saints with the congregation. So that they'll also be encouraged. Just a simple application here. Don't underestimate how important it is that you sing 
among the congregation. It's, isn't it great to know that just by opening your mouth in song, you can build up your brothers and sisters around you. You're doing something. You don't know who might see or hear you on a Sunday morning. You don't know. You're not, you're not always going to find out how it is exactly that you have helped build them up that morning. But just some examples. When I see Katie Miller holding baby Mitch, singing about God's faithfulness, it kind of helps snap me out of just going through the motions. I'm like, oh yeah, God really is faithful. She's holding baby Mitch in her arms and singing right now. Can't I sing like Katie? And I'm encouraged. Or when I see Dan and Susan sing, all I have is Christ. I'm reminded that those lyrics are real. I'm not just mouthing the words. All I have is Christ. And so I'm encouraged when I see them sing, when I hear them sing. So do that. Sing together loudly and proudly to your Lord all types of songs, but also the songs that are about His wondrous deeds so that we can lift one another up. But David doesn't just sing about this in the context of the congregation and only for the saints, but he also sings so that all might know just how glorious God is. He is recounting God's works to everyone. God is zealous for His glory to go out to all the peoples. So then, Christian, we should be zealous too that God's glory would go out to all the peoples. God didn't show you his blazing glory so that you would put it under a lampshade, right? Stick it under a bowl, put it under the bed. No, he's given you his glory so that you will spread it to other people. So go and tell them about what God has done. Did you know that a mixed multitude of people went up with the Jews out of Egypt. It wasn't just Jews. Some Egyptians and other folks went with them too. Why did they do that? What about Rahab? She wasn't a Jew. Rahab was a Canaanite. What about Ruth, one of the most famous women in the Bible? She was a Moabite. I mean, she was like a sworn enemy of God's people. These two women... Rahab and Ruth, they're in the bloodline of Jesus and they're not even Jews. <laughs> what happened there? What happened with those Egyptians? They saw God's wondrous deeds. And in the case of Rahab, you could make an argument that she only heard about God's wondrous deeds. Word had made its way to Jericho. And she's like, I'm going to be on the right side of this God. <laughs> I fear him. So, let the glory of God that you've seen be like wildfire. Let it spread through you. Let it catch the hearts of other people so that all peoples, even the enemies of God, even the Canaanites, would believe and worship God. They learned about the fear of the Lord and they learned what it is to take refuge in Him because people recounted the deeds of God. So won't you do the same? I just want to remind you of what I said from the outset. You have a story to tell about God's deliverance. All kinds of stories. All kinds of stories. Recount them. Talk about them. 
Don't share your testimony five times in your life. Don't talk about how God is helping you fight sin only a handful of times. Talk about it often. He's doing it often. So tell people in the church, tell people outside of the church how he's healing your marriage, how he's delivered you from this sin and that sin, how he's preserved your faith against the devil, how he's comforting you in your suffering, and of course, how he has saved you from your sin. God is constantly writing another chapter in your life about his glory, so won't you go and share it? Show it off. Be uh, just, just crazy about it. Just be the weirdo who talks about what God is doing in your life so that others might see it and believe and be saved. Share your story of deliverance so that others may share in the worship of the, of the glory of God. To that end, it's exactly what we're going to do as we conclude our service. We're going to publicly pray a prayer of praise, and then we're going to sing about God's glorious deeds. We're going to joyfully recount all that he has done. First, let me pray, and then our brother Michael will come up. Holy God, we thank you for your word. We thank you that you've revealed to us who you are, a righteous judge and a king that is merciful and compassionate. We thank you, Lord, for saving us. And we thank you, Lord, that one day you will fully and finally save us. We pray, Lord, that you would help us to notice all of the ways that you are delivering us from our enemies. And we pray, Lord, that you would help us to share it with our brothers and sisters and with the world. Would you glorify your name in us? And would you glorify us as we recount those very things? We pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. Michael.